Well, 30 years, for 30 years, Jesus waited for the right opportunity. And uh, during those 30 years of his life on that first side, he learned what it meant to be a son, and he also learned what it meant to be a carpenter. His father, Joseph, and people mostly in the time that Jesus was born, uh, their trade was carpentry. So he was kind of waiting as he was being a good son and as he was learning the trades of being a carpenter. And what was he waiting for? He was waiting for the scene to be set. And the scene was set because a guy who happened to be his cousin named John the Baptist came into the world. And John was, a, John was a renegade. I don't know how else to put it. John was a renegade. He was a renegade. He was rambunctious. Uh, he had this long, hairy beard. Uh, the scripture says that he wore some really cool clothes, but they were made out of camel hair. So I kind of wonder what that might smell like, you know, walking through the desert for a while. But then John, we also know that uh, John had some really stinky breath, and the, and the scripture is very clear that it wants us to know that he, his breath smelled like uh, locusts and honey. And I think the reason why the scripture goes into detail to talk to us about John is because they want us not to look or revere John because John himself was not the one who was coming to make things matter for God's people. And so we find out that John is now bringing people down to the River Jordan, and he is inviting them, but more importantly, he is coalescing them to, to begin to repent of their sins. And he is splashing them in water, and he is doing something called baptism. And he is helping them to see that God is marking them for their, for their faith. Now, uh, we need to understand that in the early Jewish uh, pieces of their thinking, the Jews believed in baptism, and basically what they would do is they would place waters on folks that were called proselytes. And proselyte is somebody who came from a different faith and was not a practicing person of Judaism. So they would baptize those individuals so that they would become clean ceremoniously and become a part of Judaism. But, but a, a, the God-fearing Jew believed that their salvation was tied to the covenant with Abraham. And what we later learn is that all of a sudden in this period that John comes alive and when Jesus is about 30 years of age, there becomes a, an acute awareness within the nationalism of Judaism that God is much different than what they thought and that they as Jews needed God's salvation not through the lineage of Abraham but through the coming of what they called and knew to be the Messiah. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus, we've got to get this right straight on. Jesus is God with skin on, okay? It's not a separate entity of what we learn about who God is in Genesis. If we go to John's gospel, we learn that Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. How do we know that? Here, here's an example. I am who I am. I am the son of Bob and Nancy Martin, okay? I am the husband of Patty Martin, and I am the father of Leanne and Kimberly. So I have three identities, but it's still me. I just have three different pieces of, of who I am with others. So I know that really simplifies, and, and the Trinity's not that easy, but, but let's just think about it in this way, that Jesus is God with skin on, and it's really important that we understand this as we begin and get into the scriptures this morning. So imagine John the baptizer standing at the river and he's calling out these words. So I'm gonna take us to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter three, and we're gonna look at uh, verses 11 and 12. So let's take a look at what it says. John is speaking, he says, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. 
So I'm taking who you are as an individual and I'm going to show you how to transform into something of greater of God's worth, okay, of, of God's purpose. He says the real action comes next, that the main character in this drama, compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand, but that person will ignite kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of our lives, and he'll place everything true in its proper place before God, and everything false he'll put out like the trash to be burned. So John is saying, don't just take and adhere what I'm doing, because the one who's coming after me, there's one far greater than me, is really what this is all about. And this is beautiful as, as Matthew talks to us, because then Matthew reminds us as we go for, a little further down, he says in, in verse 13, Jesus then appeared, arriving at the Jordan River from Galilee, and he wanted John to baptize him. Now remember, baptism was to take someone into a state of repentance, uh, take someone in a state of sinfulness and put water on them as a sign that they have been cleansed of that. So Jesus with, is God with skin on. God is sinless, right? God does not need to repent of anything. So why is Jesus coming into the water? So we see this. this the stage is being set. John objected. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. But Jesus insisted, do it. God's work putting things right all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism. So everything that was a part of what God had planned for restoration and reconciling the world back into holiness with God was at that very moment pivotal. It was going to come true. And Jesus says to John, baptize me. So as Jesus goes into the baptismal waters, he identifies with all of us. He identifies with every person who's in need. Remember, can't sin, doesn't need to repent, but yet he's going into the water for baptism. And it's at that moment that the culmination of Jesus's ministry blows wide open. Because instead of being on the outside looking and calling judgment and accusing and saying this and saying that, he gets into the water just like we're called to do. And he says, I've got to be baptized, John. Put me in the water and do so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, Leon Morris is a Christian writer and he says this, Jesus might well have been up there in the front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. But instead, he was drawn down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Think about it. Jesus in the pit with you and me. Jesus in that wrecked up place of our lives with us. Not standing on the sidelines, not in the stands looking down with binoculars, He's there with us. He's there in the midst of that. So, so what we see is the importance of water. And whenever we have a baptism, we use water. And why do we use water? Water is a universal symbol of cleansing, okay? But God has done miracle after miracle after miracle using the compounds of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. And so what we find is water is this beautiful thing 
that God does. So, so in, in the beginning, we find out that the creation becomes so distorted and all of a sudden Noah's involved and God says, build an ark. And, and the purpose of it was so that Noah, who was seen as righteous before God, that Noah and his family would be saved in the ark. That as water came, that Noah and his family could be saved. And so we see that even through the water of devastation, Noah and his family were saved. When God heard the cries of the Israelites under the slavery of Egypt, God heard their cry and God sent Moses and said, you will deliver my people from their slavery of Egypt. How does he do that? Moses takes them to the Red Sea, to the water, and God parts it. And God says, walk through the, the Red Sea, walk on dry land. And they go to the opposite end, and water saves the Hebrew people from the destruction and the slavery of Egypt. We look in the New Testament, and we see especially in, in the understanding of, of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that talk a little bit about the early years and the birth of Jesus. And we see how God uses the water of Mary's womb, and God comes into the world in human flesh through the water of a woman's womb. And Jesus is birthed into the world. Salvation before us. And Jesus now comes for the waters of baptism by John at the River Jordan. Significant things that we see with water and what water represents and transcends for us on all of this. But let's read on into the story here of Matthew 3, 16 and 17 as we continue forward. And it says here that the moment that Jesus came up out of the water, of the baptismal waters, the skies opened and he saw God's spirit and it looked like a dove descending and landing on him and along with the spirit a voice to hear a voice from heaven during this time was incredible. It was incredible. And it wasn't just that John the Baptist heard the voice or that Jesus heard the voice. Everybody there heard the voice. And what does it say the voice said? The voice speaks out and says, this is my son as Jesus comes out of the water. This is my son chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. You know, it's this, it's this image of Jesus coming up out of the water that so often just rips us up because we concretize our thinking and we think that, that it can only happen one way, that it has to be this one way or it's not valid, or that Jesus was an adult at the age of 30 and therefore baptism cannot be for anybody unless they are an adult. And we concretize things. And we have to be very careful that we don't concretize these things that we see in Scripture because we miss the bigger point that comes. Now, historically, we don't know how many people John the Baptizer baptized. We know it had to have been a lot. Okay, it had to be a lot. And the only way that John historically could have baptized that many individuals, according to Josephus, who wrote about early Judeo, uh, Judeo uh, understandings of history, and Eusebius, who was one of the outstanding early church writers, historians, they both pointed out the only way that John could have baptized that many individuals was that John, in waist-deep water, walked by the line, splashing them, repent and be saved, repent and be saved, making sure every person that he walked by was, had water placed upon them. But we also know that uh, when we read this, we say, wow, there was just adults that were there. But let's think about it for a second, okay? 
when the early church was forming, it was mostly adult males and females who were coming from the other false religions, who were coming from all the other gods that were coming into a time of repentance. And yes, there were a lot of adults who were baptized at that time. But the scripture says that they came even as families, which means children, which means students, which means young adults. And Jesus himself says these words, do not hinder the little children. Let them come to me because they too belong to the kingdom of God. So we have to make sure that we understand what, what baptism means. And that's why in the United Methodist Church, we, we see it as a sacrament. It's a sacrament of the church. What, what does a sacrament mean? A sacrament is that it's not anything that I do as a pastor putting water on, on somebody. It's not anything that the person getting baptized does. It's, it's what God's doing. And that's why we call it a sacrament, because it's, it's holy. It's, it's God who is responding. It is God who is acting. It's not an action that we have to take, but it's what God does for us. It's God's grace. It's this un, undeserved, unmerited, unearned love that God has for us. And God says, come to the waters of baptism and be baptized. It gives us an identity. It tells us that we are marked as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, if you think about it, um, the world tries to give us an identity. Your employer tries to give you an identity. Your spouse might try to give you an identity. The relationships in your family try to give you an identity. Your neighbors and the folks you hang out with, they try to impress upon who your identity is. Uh, your colleagues might say, you need, you're this kind of person. And so everybody is trying to put upon us the identity they want us to have. But God says none of those identities matter. It only matters what I give you. And I give you the identity to be a disciple of mine. And, and that's what we see and what we know in the early church is that Jesus becomes our identity and the things of which we are. But why, does, but why does Jesus do this? Why does he go into the water? What, what makes these things real? You know, was it something that John said? Was it the words that John used? I mean, as a pastor, when, when, when I baptize, is it, is it my words that, that matter? Is it like, you know, hocus pocus dominocus and it's good? Is it some magical, mystical speech that I write and every time, okay, now it's sacred? No, and that's why you know, we've got to get this. It's, it's what God does. And that's why it's a sacrament. It is God who is acting in, in our sinful world. But the important part that we see when Jesus comes out of the water is what this voice says. This is my son, which comes from Psalm number two, verse seven, where it identifies for the believers, especially those that were uh, Hebrews at the time, those who were followers of Yahweh, they would know that Psalm 2-7 was the identifying mark signifying to them that when they heard those words, they would know that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah has come. So this is my son happens. They hear it audibly, and it tells him, this is something that is happening that is real. In whom I am most pleased, or one I, that I adore, that I have so much love for. Those are words that come out of Isaiah chapter 42. And what we see from that is, that is the words leading into ultimately the writings of Isaiah 53, where Isaiah describes the suffering servant. And we truly believe as Christians, we tie together that the suffering servant is Jesus. 
And so we begin to see these things come true. So, so why was it important for that voice to say those two statements? This is my son in whom I am most pleased. Why? Number one, it tells the world that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, it says that he is ultimately going to suffer at the cross for the brokenness of our sins. And that Christ himself on the cross will adjudicate that. And that by his grace we shall be saved through our faith. And that's what makes this whole. So in the United Methodist Church, we believe that, that baptism is a covenant and that God initiates it. I don't initiate it, you don't, but God does. And God initiates that covenant and God says, this is my grace, this is the covenant that, that is a sign of my Holy Spirit working in you. That receiving this covenant, you will know that you are a new creation. So for Christians, what it means to us is that we are chosen. And what I mean by chosen is that God has chosen all of us to be reconciled unto him for the forgiveness of our sins. Even if you're not a believer, he has still chosen you. He has chosen to be your Lord. He has chosen to bless you with his grace. He has chosen you to love you, even when you don't even love him. He has chosen us. And he says to us through baptism that we are sons and daughters of his, that our identity is in Christ, and that we are, we are one with Christ. So why is it so amazing that God gives us this, this grace, even when we don't know God? It's called prevenient grace. And, and earlier, what I said was, you don't even have to know God for God to love you, because God knows all things, okay? And God chooses to love you even when you choose not to love God. Listen to me. God chooses to love you even when you choose not to love him. God chooses to give you his grace even when you uh, are evil and, and, and sin. God chooses to love you through the Christ of God, even when you don't choose God. And when we don't know God, it doesn't stop God from knowing us. So God is constantly wooing us, wooing us to come closer to him, to know him, to love him, to honor him in, in all things. So it's like, like when you were a kid. Let's, let's go back for a second. I know it's August, but <clears throat> let's go back to Christmas times. Remember Christmas as a kid? You remember that, what it was like? You know, my parents uh, had a long hallway and all the bedrooms came up to the hallway and you'd open up the door and then you'd go into the main room of the house and that's where we had Christmas. And every Christmas Eve, we would all like kind of line up at the door. But my father told us, you know, he wouldn't stay out there with us, but he told us, he said, he said, thou shalt not open this door. And if thou doest before I have my first cup of coffee, thou shalt surely die. No, he didn't say that. But... <laughs> But anyway, so, so I took that tradition and I instilled that in our family. And we used to you know, tell our kids, you know, you can't go in until we're all there. And yes, your father needs his cup of coffee. And they always ask me, Daddy, on Christmas, do you ever wake up grumpy? I said, no, girls, I let your mommy sleep. So anyway, um, but, but the whole point, though, is, you know, we wait, we wait, wait, Christmas. We get out there and we open up the treasured gift. Do you remember that? And what is it? It's the one thing you thought never would be given to you. And somebody loved you enough to give you whatever it was that you treasured. And you were just like, oh, somebody loves me so much. Look at what I got. 
But the difference between that and the gift of baptism, the gift of grace is, about two months after that, you didn't play with that anymore, did you? In fact, you were trading it with a kid up the street for something that he had or that she had. So it lost its luster. But baptism never loses its luster. It's like this beautiful gift that God has wrapped up with a huge bow. And God is standing there going like, I want you to have this. I want you to, please, this is the greatest gift you'll have. I want you to have this. And when you open it and you receive it and it is upon you, it's like it never loses its luster. It never stops shining. It never loses its value. And that's why you don't have to get it over and over and over and over again. Because it's perfect, always the first time. So we, we see some amazing things that are happening here. And, and, and you know, um, that's why for some of us, we, we have friends who, who are from other denominations and other churches. And we listen, we are very ecumenical. I'm a very ecumenical clergy person. I have friends that are Baptist, friends that are Presbyterian. I have friends that are Catholic. And, you know, you don't have to be United Methodist to be my friend. And I love all of my friends dearly because we're Christians, okay? We're Christians, and, um, and so looking at that, but, but some of our, my friends, and probably some of yours too, they don't see baptism the same way we do. We see it as a sacrament, and I've explained that to you. But they see it as what's called an ordinance. We do it because Jesus said to do it, so therefore we do it as often as we're together. But more importantly, if you change churches, they're going to baptize you into their church, right? So you go to, I'm not picking on the Baptist, just an example, you go to First Baptist, you move to another part of the country, then you go to Second Baptist and they're dunking you. And you go to Shiloh uh, Tributary Baptist in another part or whatever, then they're dunking you. And they use it as an entrance into the local church. We're going to baptize you into our church. That's not a sacrament. We, we see it as a sacrament because we believe that once you've been baptized, because it is who that acts? God, and not you or me, because God has done it, we believe that it's perfect and therefore does not need to be repeated. So that's why we don't rebaptize people in the United Methodist Church. We baptize people who have never been baptized. So whether you've come as a Catholic or from another Protestant leg of our faith, if you say to me, Pastor Bob, I've been baptized, we, we receive that. Great. You are, you are part of being marked as the kingdom. But what we do with that, though, is that we do offer what's called a remembrance of baptism. And that means that you don't get re-baptized, and I don't say the words, I baptize you in the name of, but you might have water placed upon you, or you might be immersed in water, and when you come out, we might say the words, remember your baptism and keep it holy. And it helps us to be reminded of God's great and saving grace. You see, we, we move into the words of the Apostle Paul from, he, from Ephesians 4, 3 through 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, what next? One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So God is present at baptism. Now the story I wanted to get to here is out of Acts chapter 8. It's a story of a, of a person they describe as the Ethiopian eunuch. Now what's a eunuch? A eunuch is someone who uh, through birth might have had 
Um, something happened and their genitals didn't formulate properly, so they couldn't tell whether they were able to ever procreate or not. And a second part of what a eunuch might be is that when, when peoples fought in those times, the group that lost the battle, it was not uncommon for the winning battle to come and castrate the males so that they could not procreate anymore and therefore build up people that could rise up against them. So this eunuch is someone who probably had been castrated, had, had lost his male parts, and, but who's working for Candace, who is the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, uh, what this says to us is that uh, we've got to get this because um, being a person who had had this happen in their life probably was outcast by society, probably was seen as not being a whole person, probably was an individual that others said, well, you can't associate with me because you're cursed in some way. But it was none of those things. Because what we find out is that, that some great things were happening in the life of this individual. And here, let's, let's read about it, and I'm going to tell you what happens in, in this individual's life. Let's go to Acts chapter 8, verses uh, 26 through 31. Later, God's angel spoke to Philip. This is one of the disciples. And at noon today, I want you to walk over to that desolate road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And he he got up and he went, this is Philip, he met an Ethiopian eunuch com coming down the road. And the eunuch had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning to Ethiopia where he was the minister in charge of all the finances of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And he was riding in a chariot and he was reading the writings of Isaiah, praise God. Here's a non-believer that God is wooing, prevenient grace, God is saying, you don't know me yet. You don't know to love me yet, but I'm, I'm going to woo you into this. So, so all of a sudden, some great things begin to happen. And the story tells us that God sends Philip to minister to this man. And all of a sudden, some great dialogue happens. So here's a man who was set aside he was uh, used by the queen to oversee finances, but probably was when he would travel, everybody would shun him. But God looks at Philip and says, you need to do this. You need to go to this person that people are shunning and isolating and saying are not valuable, and you need to remind this Ethiopian he is a cog pal. What's a cog pal? Child of God, person of worth that it doesn't matter what's happened in his life. He is still mine, and I claim him. I have chosen him to be a part of my kingdom. And it helps us to understand in situations in life, whenever we don't get it right, and we look at people who, are, who we think are different than us, and we've got to remember this story that all are children of God, persons of worth, and they are validated and valuable. What was he reading? It says here, he was reading these words, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who's he talking, who's he reading about? He's reading about Jesus. And in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. He was reading Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are what? Healed. 
I didn't hear that. By His wounds we are healed. By the wounds of Christ, all of us are children of God, persons of worth. Before the, the eunuch knew God, God knew him, and God was wooing him. And God said, read these words, and he does. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And they traveled the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave the orders to stop the chariot, and Philip baptized him. You know, when we look at this story, we need to see something. Some will say, it's a story of evangelism. If Philip hadn't done what God said and went to that person and told him about Jesus, he would have never been converted. There might be some truth to that. Others will say, but it was the Ethiopian, and, and had he not made the decision to proclaim Christ as his Lord and say, I want to be baptized, that's the proof in the pudding. That's the story. Yeah, there's some merit to that too. But here's the truth of the story. Didn't matter. God was acting. It was God who is the miracle in this story. It is God who overwhelmed this person with his love. And it is God who said, come accept my grace. Just think of what this guy's life would have been like if early in his life he had received that box of grace called baptism, that those waters would have been placed over him at that time. But he didn't have to wait.